Welcome to the fourth week of our series called uh, Letters from God, where we've been looking at these letters in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and chapter 3, where Jesus is writing to these uh, churches. And this week we're going to be uh, on the fourth letter, this church of Thyatira, or Thyatira, however you might want to pronounce it uh, there, and we're going to be able to hopefully to discern uh, some new things this week. Before I read that passage, the end of Revelation chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, before I read that, I want to show you a picture. And I want us uh, to look at it for um, just a moment. Now, fair, uh, fair warning, this is a, a political picture. I'm not going to be talking about politics this morning. Uh, in a few weeks, Pastor Mike is going to address that as we get right up on the election. He's going to be talking about that on Sunday morning. Um, and I did choose this and the analogy before we knew anything about uh, President Trump's health headed into uh, this weekend is there. So we certainly, as we're praying for others, we'll certainly pray for uh, he and his family. Um, but I want to show you this and I want uh, specifically uh, to make some points about how we can understand things in this image. And images change the way we see things. But images also, in this sense, help us to have a, a sense in which we do our own interpretation. We figuratively or metaphorically begin to put pieces together of a story because we know information about what's there. So let's look at this uh, picture together. And the first thing I want you to notice are the animals that are inside uh, of, the, of the image right here. So, um, yeah, we know exactly what those represent. Uh, you have this elephant and you have this donkey. The political parties in the United States of America are represented by this, right? And then if you look at the, the figures, who, who's on this? Who's this golden, big golden-haired person riding the elephant, right? Who, who is that? Well, you not just know the name of this individual. You likely know what their job is. You likely know what job they had before this. You might know about their family history. You might know about their 2016, 2017 tax returns. You might know a lot of information about this character. And then even though you can't see the face of the older man with white hair, you know who that is as well, right? There, there is a sense in which without having all the details, you're able to put the story together because of some of the other details that are there. And then finally, if you can look closely, maybe you're watching on the screen, uh, you can see inside the elephant's trunk there, a small screen, um, it says ballot on the box there. And so that clearly is pointing at in the purpose of the image. And that is that we have an election that's coming up and there's a controversy around the ballot box and all those things that are there. Again, not going to speak about that, but what I want you to do is imagine for a second that you're in another culture. Or maybe you're looking at the same image and it's 15, 20 years ago. None of the references would make sense. None, none, of, none of the metaphors, none of the larger story would make sense because you may not know exactly who this is. And if you're in another culture and you don't understand American politics, the animals would not have any meaning to you. And so it takes a lot of context for us to put stories together. And certainly that's true when you come to uh, literature in the Bible, specifically the book of Revelation. It's one of the most, um, it's filled with images and one of the most difficult to understand if you don't know the background, if you don't know the players, the characters, the figures who are mentioned, and some of the other uh, language that is evoked to tell the story that God is trying to get us to hear. So I'm about to read from Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. Again, this is to the church in Thyatira. Um, this is to, it's the smallest uh, of the communities that, that receives a letter, but it's the longest letter. So it's an extended letter uh, compared to some of the other ones. And it follows a similar pattern, as we'll see, to some of the past letters that Pastor Mike has already explained uh, what's happening there. And Thyatira, it, just in terms of geography, it's just north of Libertyville. Um, kidding. It's just north and a little bit east of where Pergamum was. And so it's in, it's in the trade route in between Europe and Asia. It would have been right along the line of where merchants and others would have been traveling and selling and those types of things are there. So a little context before we read. Again, I'll begin reading in verse 18. And then I'm going to read through verse 23 here, halfway through the letter as we get started. 
So we read in the scriptures, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And I have given her, I have given her time to repent for her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her into a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Verse 23, I will strike her children and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, again, you probably immediately are seeing some of these images, right? These fiery eyes, these bronze feet. Who is this figure? Who is this person? Jezebel. How does that make sense of what's the story? What does it mean when it's talking about death of those associated with her? Oh my goodness. What all is there? Well, we're going to, we're going to try to walk through, uh, through each of these. And as Pastor Mike has said, these letters show up um, to the church as a report card or as an evaluation, as a, as a point where they can assess where they are with God in this moment. And like some of the letters in the past, you're going to see a couple things. First, you're going to see a picture of Jesus that we're going to start out with. And then you're going to see where they are commended. So it's a, it's a word of commendation to the church. Um, after they're commended, they're also condemned. So it's a word of condemnation to the church that's there. And then at the end, uh, we didn't get there yet, but we'll get there by the end. It's a word of continuation. So three different words to the church, and then it finishes with another picture of Jesus. So picture of Jesus at the beginning, picture of Jesus at the end, and that frames up the way that this letter uh, comes to them. So first, let's start with the first picture of Jesus. And, and I just want to say that the way that you understand God the way that you make sense of who Jesus is and, and how you relate to him, the picture that you have of him will change the way that you live drastically. And that's true for uh, this church as well. So he's going to describe himself in, in certain ways. And he uses three, three different characteristics. One, son of God. Two, he says that he has these fiery eyes or eyes like flames of fire. And three, these uh, feet that are bronze or burnished bronze that's there. So let's start with the first one. Um, this, this is one of the only times you see Son of God used in the book of Revelation. And it is, seems to be a reference back to Psalm chapter 2. And we say that because later in the letter it directly quotes Psalm 2. So it's likely connected uh, to this language that's there. And Son of God here would, would be an explicit way of talking about Jesus, not just in a metaphorical who is Jesus in a philosophical way, but really in this culture, in this context, saying who is the ruler of the world? And at that time, they would have been thinking the ruler of the world, the son of God. People claim the name son of God, like different uh, Greek gods would have been seen as the son of Zeus or um, Apollo would have been a son of God, for example. Um, or even the Roman emperor would have claimed the name son of God to have people see him as the ruler and the authority of the world that's there. So Jesus is saying, uh, this is a sense in which he's saying, I am the ruler and then I am the judge. Because this next language of fiery eyes, able to discern the heart's in the minds of those um, who are reading, he has these eyes that can dissect, that can pierce the unseen uh, things that are there. And then finally, he describes himself um, as a judge, as a judge who can do something about it. it. It uses this language of burnished bronze, which is the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. And um, as we talked about the city of Thyatira, one of the things they're known for is the place has been excavate, excavated and archaeologists have come in 
dug up things. One of the patterns that they've seen is that different places in the city have guilds or communities of, of workers who come together, and there's two that are the most common. And one of those two is the bronze, the, the bronze guild, or those that work with bronze. And so this burnished bronze um, was a specific new metal created in Thyatira. They were known for it. They could sell it. It was stronger than other metals, so they would take zinc and copper and bronze and somehow pull it all together, and they came up with this, this new really strong um, element that was there, and they were able to make swords out of it and weaponry and coins for the government and things like that. And so they're known for it. And so when, when Jesus is writing, John is going to use language that steps into their community, into their culture. They'd understand it. And he brings it out and he describes who God is as a result of that. So you see this ruler and you see this judge, and that's the picture that frames up um, the rest of the letter. And I say that's important because um, it's not the only image of Jesus we get, for sure. You see Jesus in different places, described in different ways. But this is a letter and a characteristic of who God is specifically for this church and uh, the sin that they are struggling with or the issues that he is coming to them and saying, yeah, we need to correct this so that what's about to be condemned can be seen directly in light of this aspect of God's uh, character, of God being the judge who sees um, what's Happening, so I want to I want to switch to that, and I want to see what it is that um, he is he is first telling them that they do well. What is he commending in their life before he condemns? And he a few things. It says love, faith, service, and endurance. So if you're going to describe a church today in these categories, and and this is oversimplifying it, but certainly love this church. I mean, they are welcoming. They're bringing people inside. This is great. They got a good guest services, a good greeting team. They're doing great, right, on that side of things. And then when you think about faith, they are, they haven't missed a Sunday, right? Even at home during COVID live stream, they're watching, maybe flipping bacon, drinking coffee as they watch it, but they are watching it. They're not missing a Sunday. They're faithful in the middle of this. That's the, how they are described. And then they're a community who is serving others, right? They have a goal, 100,000 service hours like Christ Church, maybe. And, and they have, they're at their goal. Their people are in the community serving, giving their lives away for the sake of others. These are great things that are being said about the church. These are signs of health that are there. And then finally, you see endurance. They're not giving up. In the midst of some of the challenges and persecution they would have been facing, they're continuing to move forward in the midst of that. And so they're getting, you know, five stars, right? This is at their evaluation. They go to HR and say, I get a bonus. Look at this. I'm, I'm, we're, we're doing this so well. And then it even says you're doing it better than you used to be doing it. You're improving. You're maturing, which is exactly the path that we see in the New Testament people of God are supposed to be on. They're supposed to be on a path forward, a path to maturity. And this church is doing that, which is fantastic. They're a type of church that's welcoming, that's exciting, that's loving. They're doing great there. But, but even as they do that, you can imagine that they're saying, we want to be a church who's known for the things we're for. We don't want to be a church who's known for what we're against. We want to love the things that Jesus loves. We want to eat with the people Jesus would eat with. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. And we want to do the same thing. But what you see, what's about to come up is that even though they're for what Jesus is for, they're not against the things that Jesus is against. So they don't have a discernment. They have, may have a warm heart, but it seems like they don't have a clear mind. It seems like they're not discerning or care about issues of doctrine or teaching because they're about to be condemned for tolerating this false teaching of this woman, Jezebel. So um, it's a great impulse, and I want to applaud the church in the same way, a church that functions this way, in the same way Jesus does here. But it's not that to the exclusion of what comes next. So if you're, if you're looking, next it talks about uh, Jezebel. 
It's here. Um, and this is a word of condemnation. And, and the story of Jezebel, it's important to get the context of this. Um, I would just say, I, I don't think it's a specific woman in the church named Jezebel who is teaching false things. Um, maybe that could be the case, but it seems unlikely. Most likely what's happening here is it is a, it is a reference back to its representative of Jezebel who came up with a reputation of being this unrepentant, um, evil woman in the Old Testament. So 1 Kings chapter 16, we meet uh, King Ahab, who's leading, he's the king of Israel, and he marries this Phoenician queen named Jezebel. And when Jezebel comes to Israel, she brings with her her idols, and she brings with her specifically the idol Baal. And so Baal shows up, and she's not trying to outplace the, the God of Israel. She's not trying to say Yahweh step aside. She's just trying to say, in addition to Yahweh, we want to also have Baal. We want to have another God who's there too, because this God has protected me in the past, and I want to bring him forward. So she brings him, sets up idols in the temple. She also brings 450 prophets with her, so that there are, there are people who represent this God to come inside of Israel and begin making a syncretistic movement or a movement where Israel's no longer a pure nation trying to follow after the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now they are one God among many different gods, right? A, a theological or a, a mutt. It's not a pure line. It's just sort of a mixed breed of what's happening. And so she is trying to do this, which is a direct... Um, it is a direct way of breaking the first commandment of Israel. So when Moses gives the commandments, the first one is what? Is that you shall have no other gods before me and alongside of me. And yet Jezebel is saying we can have both. We can have this and we can have this. We can depend on both of these for life. We can have, depend on both of these for protection. We need both of these to be guiding and leading us forward. And so this spirit of Jezebel would have been anchored into the hearts and the minds of the people. And when they see and hear her name, those are the associations that they would have uh, been, ma been making. It's, it's almost like you're saying if you're driving a car that you can have two steering wheels, right? Or maybe three or four steering wheels, right? It's not going to work. I mean, ultimately, someone has to make the call. And if you have two people that are trying to drive a car forward, or three people or four people or five people, somebody ultimately has to say we're going this way or that way, or nothing but confusion and chaos is there. And Jezebel was trying to say, no, we can have two steering wheels. We can have two different directions or leaders or gods, if you will, of our life. And what's the word coming to this church is that you're putting up with that. You're tolerating or you're compromising in order for the teachings of this woman Jezebel to show up so that you hold on to the idols that you have in this world and you try to hold on to those while you are yeah, loving, serving, doing well. You're doing those things, but you're, you, need to, you need to make sure that God and God alone is first in your life. So an idol that she would have had would have been um, a, one of the ways to talk about that is, is anything that is a good thing on earth and you look for it for only the things that God can give. So you look for it in an ultimate way to give you identity for who you are, or you look for it to give you protection over your life or direction in your life. You're looking for something on earth to be giving you what only divinely can be given um, by God. And Andy Crouch, when he talks about idols, he says, he says it this way. He says that every idol makes two very simple and extravagant promises to you. The first is this, is that you shall not die. Surely you shall not die. The second one is that you shall be like God. 
these are cert- referenced back to uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the whisper of Satan um, to uh, the serpent to Adam and Eve early. And those promises hold true even in our own lives. And then he continues and he says, These are the two promises that when whispered at the right moment by a cunning adversary can wind their way around the human heart and bind it to any created thing. So what he's trying to say is that these good things, we, that we can cling to them and try to find life apart from God. There's a way in which we're going to live our lives and try to do an end around of who God is by finding life in something else, in an idol. And maybe this church is trying to do that, find life in something else and cling to God at the same time. Let me give you an example. So as I mentioned, it's known, the community was known for the guilds, the business communities that, that come together around whatever um, product it is they're making or trading or whatever it is. And so it would have been common in that day for a guild to associate themselves with a god. We mentioned Apollo earlier. So let's just say that the god who's chosen for the bronze guild is the god of Apollo. And so once a month they would need to participate in the feast for Apollo. And to participate in the feast for Apollo, that would mean that you eat, you, you participate in the meal that is meat, specifically sacrifice to the idol so that this idol, Apollo, will bless the business that you do. And that he will be, his wrath will be satisfied in you. So you eat a certain meal in a certain way. And in addition to that, in that time, uh, that part of the cultic worship of a God like this would have been fertility practices. Uh, and it could have been all sorts of sexual deviation, we know. There could have been prostitution in the temple, prostitution at these feasts. And it would have been another part of trying to please or to make sure that these gods are going to bless the work that you do. And workers, these new Christians who may have been a part of this, and this is their trade, this is what they do, they would have been asked or maybe even required by the others in the community to participate in these activities in order to make sure they don't make the gods angry. And so it says, oh, that's the teaching of Jezebel that you can do both of those things. God's way is this way. God's design for marriage is this way. And, and this is what you need to do with your bodies. And it really matters how you handle those things. And so you can see um, that tolerating these types of teachings inside the church was something that Jesus is coming in and saying, no, that is not it. And Jezebel becomes this picture for representing unrepentance. And then uh, he says that if you continue in this way, if you live your life in such a way, these are the steps down. These are the consequences that are going to happen. At first, you're going to see sickness, the sick bed that's described in suffering, maybe extended sickness. And ultimately, this is the path that leads to death, right? This is the direction that's going to go to make sure that life is taken from you, not just for you, but also for those around you. And you see this as a pattern um, in sin and in idolatry as well, is that ultimately, even though it promises life apart from God, that ultimately it begins to slowly take your life from you. And the end result is that, just like in this case, death would have happened. And that was the way that Jezebel's life ended. It's this very tragic, like PG-13 um, story at the end of First Kings. It's recorded that she ends up, um, the way that she dies is, is falling out of this window and being run over by a chariot. And then her, her life is, uh, her body is eaten by wild animals. I mean, it's just one of those, it's one of those really tragic things. But it also would have been something that, that people would have associated with the way of Jezebel ends in this type of ending. This is the way that the story goes that's there. So the language that's used here uh, would likely be trying to attach it to the way of Jezebel ends up in this direction. So 
I want to read beginning in verse 24 because we're going to keep going. So they're, they're commended and then they're condemned for tolerating uh, Jezebel type teachings. And then at the end, there's another group of people in the church that are also spoken to uh, by Jesus. Who, and he tells them to continue on what they're doing. So verse 24, we see this. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose on you any other burden except to hold on, hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one, now he's going to quote Psalm 2, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So there's a group of people who are not fooled. There's a group of people who are not tolerating. There's a group of people who are not just early on love, endurance, faith, that's characterizing their life, but also discernment, willingness to not stand for false doctrine and to say something, to not tolerate the things Jesus doesn't tolerate and to be for what Jesus is for at the same time. And that group of people, the word that comes to them is to hold on. It is this active word, this not passive word. It's not cruise control. It's not drift. It's not float. It's keep rowing. It's keep moving in the same direction. It's if you're growing tired, hold on. If you're struggling right now, keep going. Encourage one another to move in this direction because I'm going to hold out something in front of you, something in the future that you can look forward to. And that is this coming back of myself described as the morning star. Jesus says, I'm coming back as the morning star. Morning star is a, uh, again, another sort of image that would have made more sense uh, to this community right away. Um, in Revelation 22, later on, Jesus describes himself again as the morning star. You see this show up in Old Testament language as well that would have been there. And he is saying that I am this one. I am this judge who is going to come back that after the darkness, hope is going to come. That even in the midst of persecution, that someone is going to come back and make all these things right. That's how they would have associated this. And so this aspect of Jesus' character, this coming back to make things right, to return, this would have been just a boom of energy for this young church community because they would have been living in persecution. And specifically think through that scenario we came up with earlier. If they're asked to either serve the God of Baal or Apollo or serve the God uh, um, or follow Jesus, if that's the situation, then they lose their job and lose their, lose their livelihood, economic suffering, all sorts of things. They would have been in this really hard place. They would have been experiencing injustice. They would have been left out of social uh, scenarios. They would have been, they would have felt powerless and invisible inside of the community and lived a life where they're longing for someone to come and make things right. They're longing for someone to show up and be their advocate to, as it says here, right, to use this language, to rule with an iron scepter and to shatter the things that are wrong. That's there. So Jesus says, this is part of who I am as well. And I promise you that I'm going to come back. So hold on. So how is it that you, how is it that I, how is it that this church is able to grasp, to hold on, to not be passive, to not be blown away, to not be um, undiscerning and to tolerate false teaching? How has that happened? Well, you have to have the right picture of who Jesus is. So let's look at what this morning star is one last time. Um, there is a, um, there's a book called Counterfeit Gods. And inside of this book, the pastor is explaining um, about how a picture of Jesus and being and meeting uh, the uh, understanding the story of the good news of, of Jesus can dramatically change your life. 
and can set you on a new course that's there. And so he describes this, this woman inside of his church in his young ministry that he meets a lady named Sally. And he says this, he says, Sally had the misfortune of being born beautiful. And even as a child, uh, she began to discover that she had the power that she could wield over people um, in order to uh, receive, because of her physical attractiveness, she could kind of receive what she wanted. She was in control of those situations. So she learned to manipulate situations uh, through using her beauty uh, to do that. But ultimately, she became the one who was manipulated by others for the sake of her beauty. And she lost power and she felt completely invisible. And if she wasn't in a relationship with another man, she felt like life wasn't worth living. And she stuck around in relationships way too long. She endured things she never should have endured because why? She needed to have this affection. She needed to have the intimacy and the love and the feeling of security that she found inside of a, inside of a relationship with a man. And then he goes on, and it's a fascinating way that he dissects idolatry and how strong our hearts can get wrapped around those things. It's worth reading, and that whole chapter is. But I want, to, I want you to hear what he says here at the end of the chapter. He wraps it up, and he says this. One day, Sally told me how she got her life back. She went to a counselor and rightly pointed out that she'd been looking to men for her identity or her, quote, salvation. But instead, the counselor proposes that she gets a career, and she becomes financially independent, is a way of building up her self-esteem. So Sally says she wholeheartedly agrees that that's a step she needs to take. She needs to stand on her own two feet. Economically, that's true. But then she resisted the advice that he gave her after that. He says, I don't want to find my self-esteem in that way. I was being advised to give up a common female idol and take on a common male idol instead. But I didn't want my self-worth to be dependent on a career of success or on any man. I wanted to be free of both of them. So how is it that she said that she found life? How is it that she became free as a result? Well, what happened to her is that she heard the good news of the story of Jesus. <laughs> she met the morning star. She met the hope on the other side of the darkness that is there. And that is that this Christ, this King who had everything, gave up everything and he died the death that she deserved and he brought life out of the grave and he said, you can find life in me. Colossians chapter 3 is what she ends up quoting that says, so that Christ, when he, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. You can hide your life inside of what he has done and he has accomplished for you. You can find your identity there. You can define your life in who Jesus is and what he says about you. So uh, when she realized this um, and she continues to go on about her life, she explains to this pastor, she says, so I would, for example, I'd meet a guy and I would say, um, uh, man, this could be a great guy and I might be interested in him and maybe he turns out to be a husband one day, but he is not someone who can define my life. Only Christ can define my life. Christ is my life. I have hidden my life in him and he is the source of life. It's not Christ and something else. She's not living the Jezebel both life. She's living the singular Christ is my identity. He is the one who defines who I am. He's the most significant thing about me. So the way that we hold on, the way that we move forward is we return to the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy of Christ seen in the gospel. And we're going to do that this morning by, um, we're going to close the service here with the time of communion. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You can hit pause on this if you'd like and go get uh, bread and juice, bread and wine um, and participate with us. We'd love for you to do that. But this story is rehearsing the promise that the King is going to come back and make everything right. 
and he is going to eat with us once again. And we find our identity in his death and in his resurrection. And so as we're, as we're participating in um, drinking this cup and having this bread, the body and the blood of Jesus, we are finding ourselves in the identity. We're laying our life down in the death that he died. And we're, we're living in the hope of the life that he has given us moving forward. So um, I'm going to pray for us now, and then we're going to have a chance to take uh, communion together. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we want to have clear pictures of who you are and clear, clear pictures of who Jesus is. And different ones of us are in different places in life where we need to see uh, the more fierce side. We need to see the lion side of, of Christ. And others of us need to see the lamb side. We need to see where he comes alongside and is sacrificially gives up uh, his life for us. And God, wherever we might be this morning, uh, we pray that we would hear this word from the church, um, that we would pursue the things that you're affirming and we would step away from the things that you are not. And we would condemn and, and not tolerate uh, those things as well. So we, we pray that our church would find uh, truth in the midst of that and see you for who you fully are that's there. God, I thank you for the goodness and mercy uh, that uh, comes to us in Christ. And we pray that as we take uh, part in communion right now, uh, God, it would be a powerful way of reminding us um, of the identity that we have in Christ and the hope that we have that Christ will one day return and make all things right. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.